seat and we'll get started. All right, let's, let's start with prayer. Thank you, Lord, for this day. I thank you for all of the ladies that are here at this Bible study. I thank you for the opportunity we have to learn from one another what we've learned from your word, Lord. I just thank you for your word, and please help each of us to continue to grow and apply it to our lives. We love you, Lord, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we had five chapters again this week, <laughs> two weeks in a row. That's a lot of, a lot of scripture to cover. So at first glance, chapters 17 through 21 of Joshua can be intimidating with the plethora of names and land divisions. And each of these, in each of these chapters, there is a continuation of the allotting of the land to the Israelites. And we have lists of names and descriptions of land allotments. And it can be quite cumbersome to read through it all especially since many of the names and locations are not familiar to us. Many times when reading through the Bible, we might even be tempted to skip over these parts because it doesn't seem to have much relevance to us today. But we know from 2 Timothy 3:16 and 17 that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And we are also told in Romans 15:4, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So even these chapters that we've studied this week are profitable to equip us and give us hope. These chapters are here for a purpose. One thing that struck me while praying and thinking on all of these verses is that there is a much bigger picture here about who our great God is and what he is all about. We can see so many truths about God in these chapters, but today I want to focus on one thing, and it is summed up at the end of the chapters we studied. In the last verse of chapter 21, we read, not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. Not one word of his promises had failed. God keeps his promises. God is faithful. Despite man's sinful rebellion, our God is faithful to do what he says he will do. And we can clearly see this in our chapters we've studied this week and the ones we studied last week. These verses, as we all know, are in keeping with God's promises that he made to Abraham in Genesis. God made a covenant with Abraham that he repeats and continues to fulfill throughout Scripture. In this covenant, there were three main promises that God established with Abraham that he would provide. He promised seed, promise of land, and a promise of blessing. We first see these promises in Genesis chapter 12, 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those that, who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So as we go through these chapters today, let's focus on our God keeping his promises and showing his faithfulness. 
And speaking with Vicki Krivax about these chapters, she said, with each tribal land allotment, it's like the author holding a big megaphone and shouting, God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises. Can you just picture that? I thought that was a great visual. We know that Abraham had Isaac, Isaac had Jacob, and Jacob had 12 sons. These 12 sons had numerous descendants, and many are listed here in these chapters. Tribe after tribe is listed, and each of these are a display of the fulfillment of God's promise to make Abraham a great nation. We don't have the complete list of descendants here, but we do see how the people multiplied. You may remember in Genesis 15, 5, when God reaffirms his promise and says to Abraham, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. So here in these chapters, we, can, we get a glimpse of God's promise of the many descendants to Abraham. With every name we read, we are reminded of the countless offspring of Abraham. Not only do we see the promise of many descendants here, but we also see the promise of land. That's what this is all about. You may remember in chapter 8, when the Israelites met at the two mountains, Ebal and Gerizim, and they read the blessings and the curses, and the valley in between was Shechem, and in between the two mountains, and that's centrally located to the whole land of Israel. And this is the very location where centuries before, God showed Abram the land of promise. And in Genesis 12, 6 through 7, he says, it says, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. He was overlooking the very land that we're reading about and learning about. Abram could see the whole land from this location, and God promised this land to his many descendants, and it is here in these chapters of Joshua that we have studied the last two weeks where we see God keeping this promise that he made. We open our study today in chapter 17 with a continuation of the allotment of land portions for the sons of Joseph. We saw last week the portion allotted for Ephraim, And today, we see the land being given to the second half of the tribe of Manasseh. The chapter begins by telling us that Machir, the eldest son of Manasseh, had received his portion of land in Gilead and Bashan because Machir was a man of war. We learn in Numbers 39 that he had defeated the Amorites. So Moses gave him this portion of land, which is located east of the Jordan River. If you remember, the first half of Manasseh had received their portion prior to entry into Jericho. Next, we're told of Zelophehad, the great-great-grandson of Manasseh. We're told he has no sons, and his five daughters have come to Eleazar the priest and Joshua, requesting their portion of land that was previously promised to them. We can read about the decision to give the daughters an inheritance in Numbers 27, where these daughters bring their case to Eleazar the priest and to Moses. Starting in verse 4 of chapter 27 in Numbers, the daughters are speaking, and they say, Why should the name of our father be taken away from his clan because he had no son? Give to us a possession among our father's brothers. Moses brought their case before the Lord, and the Lord said to Moses, The daughters of Zelophehad are right. You shall give them possession of an inheritance among their father's brothers and transfer the inheritance of their father to them. In a time when women in most societies were regarded as unimportant, 
and were without rights, God shows he values women by giving the daughters of Zelophehad the right to an inheritance. He promised it to them, and they are requesting that Joshua follow through with what the Lord had said he would do for them. So Joshua gives these women a portion of land along with the sons of Manasseh. The remaining half-tribe of Manasseh received their allotment, and we read in verses 12 and 13 of chapter 17 that they did not take full possession of that allotment. It says, yet the people of Manasseh could not take possession of those cities, but the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. Now when the people of Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not utterly drive them out. Once again, we see the people disobeying the Lord. They did not completely destroy the people as they were instructed to do in Deuteronomy 20, where we read, But in the cities of these peoples that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes. But you shall devote them to complete destruction, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded, that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods, so that you sin against the Lord your God. We're even told that the tribe of Manasseh, when the tribe of Manasseh grew strong, they drove the people into forced labor. If they were strong enough to force the men to labor, then they were strong enough to destroy them. This was a clear violation of what God commanded, and we learn in Judges that they do pay the consequences for their disobedience. Next in our chapter, the people of Joseph come to Joseph Joshua about the size of their land allotment, and they start complaining. And they make excuses for their disobedience and not driving out the people. They want a larger portion of land. They want something different than what God had given them. In an attempt to deal with the discontent people, Joshua agrees with their assessment and gives them direction to clear out the forest and the hill country and tells them that will be their land also. Being the leader he was, Joshua does not argue the point with the people, but instead he agrees and he gives them a solution to their problem and encourages them that even though the Canaanites were strong and had iron chariots, the people of Joseph would be able to drive them out. Unfortunately, the people had forgotten the promise of the Lord to be with them, Not only should they have remembered that the Lord had been with them driving out the people all along, but they should have also remembered what Moses told them before entering the land in Deuteronomy 7, where he says, if you say in your heart, these nations are greater than I, how can I dispossess them? You shall not be afraid of them, but you shall remember what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all Egypt. And then down in verse 21, it says, You shall not be in dread of them, for the Lord your God is in your midst, a great and awesome God. But instead of remembering the promises of God that were made to them, to be with them, and his faithfulness in the past to do what he had said he would do, they drew back in fear and made excuses for disobedience and were not satisfied with their lot of land. I just want to comment very quickly about the disobedience of the Israelites and say before we judge them too harshly, we should examine our own lives to see where we are just like them. The Israelites were told to annihilate everything and not allow the wicked practices of idol worship of the foreign people to infiltrate them. 
They were told to be God's holy people set apart, yet they did not follow God's instructions. In addition to this, the tribe of Joseph complains about their lot of land, and they make excuses for why they can't obey the Lord. We today have also been told to live holy lives. We know God's word says this, yet how often do we go back to our same sinful patterns? We should be wiping out anything in our lives that would cause us to stumble. We need to examine our lives to see what sin we have not annihilated and is therefore slowly creeping its way into our lives. Maybe it's coming through the books we read, movies we watch, music we listen to, or it could be that the internet and the use of social media has caused a seed of discontentment to be planted. And just like the tribe of Joseph, before we know it, we're complaining about our lot in life or making excuses for why we cannot completely obey God in one particular area. We give the Israelites such a bad rap, or at least I do, for their constant complaining and turning away from the Lord. But how often do we do this in our own lives today? Just like the Israelites, we justify our disobedience in our own minds. Well, if God would just give me more, or if things just look different, then I could obey him completely. Do you see how in our daily lives, we do the very same thing the Israelites did? We say there's obstacles, our chariots of iron, in our way that are keeping us from obeying God completely. But when given a clear direction through his word how to proceed, we justify our disobedience just like the Israelites. How quickly we forget that God has given us everything we need to be obedient to him right now because we have his Holy Spirit working through us to help us. The circumstances of our lives do not need to change in order for us to be obedient to God. We're told in Hebrews 13, 5, to be content with what we have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Each one of us has been given a lot in life. And some of these lots have struggles that appear as chariots of iron. But God has promised us he will not leave us nor forsake us. No matter what our lot in life is, we can obey God now because he has equipped us with his Holy Spirit. And we should not make excuses or be afraid to follow through with obedience knowing that God is in control of the outcome. May we always remember God's promises to us as we struggle through our daily lives. And may we not lose sight of his bigger plan, trusting him to take care of any chariots of iron that we may have. So back to Joshua. (laughs) Immediately after the disobedience in chapter 17, in direct contrast to what just occurred, we are told in the beginning of chapter 18 that the whole congregation of Israel meets at Shiloh, the center of the land, to set up the tent of meeting. This appears to be a regrouping of priorities for the Israelites, gathering together to remember that God is in their midst, just like he promised. Should help serve as a good reminder to them that worship and service to the one true God should be central to their lives. After the setting up of the tent of meeting, we see that there are seven tribes left to have their land apportioned, and Joshua asks the people in verse 3, how long will you put off in 
going in to take possession of the land which the Lord, your, the God of your fathers, has given you. Apparently, these tribes were slow in, in moving into and taking possession of their land. So Joshua decides to help the matter by giving instructions to these tribes on how to allocate their land. Each of the remaining seven tribes was to provide three men, and these 21 men in total would survey the land and write out a description to divide it accordingly. Lots for the allotments would then be cast in the presence of the Lord. In verses 11 through 28 of chapter 18, we have the first lot drawn for Benjamin. His land included the future site of the temple, which fulfilled what Moses said in his final blessing to the people of Israel before his death in Deuteronomy 33, verse 12. In chapter 19 of Joshua, verses 1 through 9, we have the lot cast for Simeon. Simeon's inheritance was in the midst of the inheritance of Judah because the portion given to Judah was too large for them. Eventually, Simeon would be dispersed throughout the land, and in 2 Chronicles, we learn that some had migrated into other territories. This fulfilled what was stated in Genesis 49, verses 5 through 7, in Jacob's final blessings to his sons, where he said of Simeon that because of his previous sin, they would be scattered throughout the land. In chapter 19, verses 10 through 16, we have Joshua, uh, of Joshua, we have the land allotted to Zebulun. In Genesis 49, verse 13, in Jacob's final blessing for his sons, Jacob said, Zebulon shall dwell at the shore of the sea and shall become a haven for ships. And we see here in Zebulon's portion that his portion was between the Sea of Galilee and the Mediterranean Sea. Next, in verses 17 through 31 of chapter 19, we read of the land allotments for Issachar and Asher, who bordered Zebulon to the south and north, respectively. respectively. Issachar's land included fertile and beautiful valley of Jezreel, while Asher's was assigned the Mediterranean coastal lands from Mount Carmel north to Sidon and Tyre. Next, we have Naphtali in verses 32 to 39 of chapter 19. Their land was much of where Jesus' Galilean ministry would, have to, would take place. The last of the remaining seven lot, land allotments went to Dan. We are told here that this territory was lost to them, and they eventually migrated north, conquering Leshem, which was a land located north of Naphtali. The account of this loss can be found in Judges chapter 1, where, where we are told they did not drive out the Amorites, but the tribe of Joseph instead drove the Amorites into forced labor. At the end of chapter 19, we come to Joshua's inheritance. Like the humble, unselfish leader he was, he waited until all of the tribes had been given their inheritance before being given his own inheritance among the people of Israel. I love verse 50 of chapter 19 where it says, By the command of the Lord, they gave him the city that he asked. God had promised Caleb and Joshua years before that they would be the only two people over the age of 20 who had experienced the exodus that would come into the promised land. And here we have, by God's command, Joshua receiving his inheritance in that very land. Caleb received his portion first, and Joshua received his portion last. All of the tribes were given their inheritance, and we see that not all of the tribes were complete in taking possession of their inheritance. But we have seen Caleb and Joshua both be constant in their faith, trust, and obedience to the Lord. 
Despite the Israelites' lack of obedience, God is still faithful to keep his promise of giving the land. Michelle stated something similar last week, but I think it's worth repeating. So I'm going to quote from a commentary that I read where he said, though the notes are not visible in the text, it's really music. It is simply, great is thy faithfulness in a different key. It is a standing witness to the fact that the majority may neither be faithful nor right. It is a witness to the fact that Yahweh keeps his promises. Moving on in our lesson, we come to chapter 20 and the establishment of cities of of refuge. The ordinance to establish these cities of refuge was one of the first given after the announcement of the Ten Commandments in Exodus, where we read in chapter 21, verses 12 and 13, Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. But if he did not die, lie and wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place to which they may flee. So these cities were to be places that one could seek refuge if they found themselves having committed manslaughter, which is an, an unintentional or accidental killing of another. These cities of refuge are discussed in four other books of the Old Testament. So they were definitely important to the Lord. God has always placed an importance on human life, and to put an end to another's life, even unintentionally, was a matter to be taken seriously. When a person was killed, their nearest relative would be responsible for avenging their blood. God, in his wisdom and mercy, established that in the case of accidental death, there would be cities located throughout the land of promise so that one could seek refuge and have a place to remain safe while their case was being decided. If found guilty of murder, they would then pay with their life. But if indeed it was determined that manslaughter had occurred, the person would remain in the city of refuge until the death of the high priest, after which they could return to their home. There were three cities of refuge located on the east of the Jordan and three located on the west. They were strategically located and clearly marked so that a person would be able to flee to the closest one within a day's journey, no matter where in the land they found themselves at the time. These cities of refuge, numbering six in all, were also Levitical cities. And that brings us to chapter 21, where we have the people of Israel allocating cities within their land to the Levites. And we read in verse 3, So by the command of the Lord, the people of Israel gave to the Levites the following cities and pasture lands out of their inheritance. We learned in previous lessons and were reminded in these chapters that the Levites' inheritance is the Lord. So they do not receive a land inheritance, but instead they're given 48 cities throughout the whole land in which to dwell and serve the Lord. Each tribe had Levitical cities they had given up. And if you can picture it, what you see is a beautiful sight. God has given the whole land to the Israelites just as he promised. He's provided for them through the land flowing with milk and honey, while also establishing cities of refuge nearby. And throughout the whole land, there were Levitical cities where the people could be spiritually refreshed and encouraged. God provided abundantly for his people in keeping with the promises he made to their ancestors. And here we are at the end of chapter 21, where we read, 
Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers, and they took possession of it, and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. God had given the people the land he promised Abraham almost seven centuries before. In these chapters, we have seen that God keeps his promises of land and seed to Abraham's descendants. Ladies, this is the same God we serve today. We serve the God who keeps his promises. And this is where it gets so exciting for us. Remember the three parts of the promise that God made? The promise of seed, the promise of land, and the third promise was a promise of blessing. God promised Abraham that all the nations of the world would be blessed through him. Those of us who are saved and have repented of our sin and believe in Jesus Christ as our Savior have been blessed through Abraham because we have salvation through Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And because of our salvation, we have a promise of a future inheritance. And in Ephesians 1, verses 13 to 14, we read, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. We have been given the Holy Spirit as a guarantee of our future inheritance. That future inheritance is described in 1 Peter verses, chapter 1, verse 4, as an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. This is our hope We have a hope in a future kingdom that will not pass away and is unstained by sin. That is our promise that God made to us. The same God who we see in these chapters keeping his promises to Abraham has included us in that promise by giving us salvation through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Jesus will come back for us one day, as he said in John 14, 3, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. He will take us to be with him in heaven forever. That is our promised inheritance. Yay. (laughs) It blows my mind. Thank you, Lord. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much. We thank you for salvation through Jesus and the promised future inheritance for those who believe in him. Thank you, Lord, for this study and how it is so profitable for us today. Thank you for the hope that we have that you will return for us one day. Lord, help us to see that we need to completely trust in you and obey you above all. We love you, Lord, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.